0: Good job, Adam. Thank you. Let's just pray before we begin. Lord, this is a tricky passage. Um, We're not sure what it says to us right now, but Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me, teach each of us what it is that this passage is saying. I pray that you would uh, give us attentive ears and, and... Ears that hear what you have to say to us tonight, a spirit that is is willing to listen as well. I pray this in your name, Amen. Most of you know that I like a bit of running. I'd like to um, to be able to do a, a marathon one day, or even a half marathon. A marathon is forty-two point one nine five kilometers. Now that that one nine five. Meters is very important. I'm sorry. That one, 195 meters is very important. How are we going, Ian? Like <laughs> Do you want me to use the lectin? So, the 195 metres is very important. It's, it's not 42 kilometres, it's 42.195 kilometres. And I'd like to be able to, to think that I could complete a marathon. I'd like to be able to think that I could do probably a half marathon to start with. But I couldn't do it at this sort of stage, at this sort of fitness. I wouldn't be able to to run 42.195 kilometres or even 26.097 kilometres. I wouldn't be able to to do it without some degree of extra training. Um, I run probably three times a week on average and sometimes it's five kilometres, sometimes it's six, sometimes it's ten. But even at that sort of fitness, I wouldn't be able to do a half marathon without some extra training on top of that. I'd have to get up in the morning and um, run, do a decent distance and as the event got closer I'd have to to up the ante to, to do more and more training. And that's what I reckon we've got here in this passage is Jesus' disciples being trained further in their ministry. He's training them to be equipped for their future ministry. He's training them, to, showing them what it's going to look like as he departs this earth, after he's crucified, resurrected and ascended. And he's spent months and months with them, training them about who he is, what he has come to do and then what he has called them to do as well. He's spent months and months training them in who God is and what it exactly means to repent and believe in God. And you can notice different times in Jesus' ministry where where he teaches his 12 disciples exclusively and then extends it out to the crowds and villages and towns and that sort of thing. But you can see that we have now an example of, of him training his disciples not while he's there and he called them for this very very reason he called them for this very reason Mark chapter 3 verse 14 says and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach keep your keep your Bibles in Mark chapter 6 um And it's on the screen there. There you go. Now, you might be interested to know that the word apostle in Greek means to be sent, to be sent out. Not only to be sent out, but to be sent out as a messenger. And that's exactly what the apostles are here. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is sending them out to preach. And he is sending them out to preach that that God has come and they are to repent. Jesus has been doing widespread ministry within the towns and villages. He's been rejected in our previous message last week. And now he's sending his disciples out on more of a focused evangelism. There was 12 of them. He He sends them out two by two. So there's six different directions where... These disciples could have gone. And it's much like the crusades of Billy Graham or some of the big evangelists like Reinhard Bonnke. He sends them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He sends them out not only because of the need for um, there to be a, a a companion on the journey, but he he sends them out because there's a need in Jewish culture for more than one witness. Whenever there's a legal uh, kind of a kind of legal thing that happens, a judgment or a or a, a court case, there has to be more than one witness. Deuteronomy 17 verse six says that on on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And as we see later on in the passage, the groups of two disciples are witnesses to the villages about the coming judgment. It also shows us that not only God writes the law, but the Son of God keeps the law as well. And the, the disciples are not only witnesses about the coming judgment, but they're, they're witnesses to the villagers about them rejecting Jesus as well. Not only is there a legal meaning behind this two by two, but Jesus shows that ministry is not to be done alone. Jesus knew that it would be a hard journey for the disciples. He told them straight up, people are going to reject you. So he knew that there would be trials along the way. And there are many, many passages that talk about about hardships and trials. And so it just gives us an image of that the Christian life is not meant to be done alone. After all, Jesus forms his church and in many passages calls it brothers and sisters in Christ or calls it sons of God or calls it the bride of Christ and it gives us an image of, of family, of closeness, of intimacy, of supporting one another. In 1 Thessalonians 2 um, Paul Paul gives the, the image of, of him being a father over the Thessalonian church and a nurturing mother and it gives us another image of the church being like a family I'm going to ask you tonight do you think that's one of the hallmarks of this church I've been here six weeks now and I'm the new guy on the block so Everyone's inviting us around for meals and that sort of thing. We've felt very welcomed. But do you think in the day-to-day, day-to-day grind, do you think that's one of the hallmarks of this church, one of the, the key factors of this church? Are we like a family? And if not, what are we going to do about it? I think I digress a little bit. As I said earlier, Jesus sends, us out, sends them out in various directions and gives them some suspe- sus- specific—I'll get it out—specific instructions. He gives them the positive and a negative. He tells them, "Don't take anything for the journey except a staff. Don't take bread or a money bag or no money in, or no sandals." Oh, sorry. No, no second tunic, but to wear sandals. It says that in verse 8 and 9. Whenever you go for a decent sort of, sort of walk, you always take a little bit of water with you, don't you? And, um, and if it's a, a really decent sort of walk, you'll take um, maybe an apple or a banana in your bag. You might take a Coke with you if it's going to be cold or if you're going to be out after dark but, but Jesus tells them don't take these things where the disciples are geographically it gets cold at night time um, they're also travelling on foot so the journey was a long journey not, not just from a, a rejection point of view but purely from a physical point of view a, it was a long journey And yet Jesus tells them, don't worry about these things. Don't take these things because you won't need them. Because the disciples are being trained to place their trust in God, not only in their personal belongings. Jesus is training them to to place their trust in God more than money, food or clothing and to fully rely on God for these things, completely, completely even for a place to stay over night time. God knows you need these things. God knows that we need food, water, shelter, clothing. But he tells us to not worry about these things, to not chase after these things. Don't even worry about it. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is is giving his famous sermon on the mount. Is that big enough? Yes, no, there's some at the back saying no. Verse 31 in Matthew chapter 6 says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we wear, or what shall we drink? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Here Jesus is charging his disciples to do exactly that. Don't be anxious about what tomorrow brings, just... Rely on God for today's, today's food, shelter and clothing. And he tells them to go out and totally rely on God for not only food and shelter, but for a place to stay, a, a place to stay and a place to base their ministry around as well. Later on in the ministry of Jesus, before his crucifixion, he... Um, he lets the disciples bring these things. He, he lets them take a money bag and a sword because he knew that they had learnt the, the, um, the lessons to not just trust in these things, but to fully rely on God. And you can see that the disciples are, are gradually being trained more and more to be able to, to be reliant on God for everything. Let's move on. Verse 10 says, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. The ministry of the disciples was to be marked with a humble persistence to accept hospitality and yet speak the truth to those whom they were living with. They weren't to go into a town and, and move into the first house, stay there a night, and then think, who else can I stay with? Who, who better in the town can I stay with, like the town clerk or the, the mayor, or I don't know whether they had those people in those days, but they weren't to go into a town and be seeking an upgrade. They were to be content with where God had placed them initially. But then if, if any place didn't accept them, and didn't accept their message, didn't listen to them. They were told to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Jewish people shook the dust off their feet when they were returning back into Israel after travelling in Gentile regions. They would literally knock the dust off their feet, brush it off with their hands and and see themselves coming back into God's kingdom as a clean people. They didn't want anything, even the dust on their feet, to make them unclean and unholy. I wouldn't see the Bible saying that we need to do this as a practice these days. I don't see abandonment in in the Bible as a good thing. It certainly does happen. It is a necessity because... God is holy and he cannot accept an unholy people. But we're not commanded to do this in this sort of day and age simply because cultural reasons it would be strange. If I walked into your house and and knocked the dust off outside, um, you'd probably appreciate it, but it would look very strange, wouldn't it? God doesn't desire anyone to perish. And as I said, yet because of his holiness and his righteousness, he cannot allow an unholy people to be his people. I saw a picture on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that that said that was asking the question, how can a loving God send People to hell. And it said the question is not how can a loving God send people to hell, but why would people reject a loving God in place of hell? The question is not why does God do these things? Why do we not do these things that God desires of us? And this verse also teaches us that that there will be times when we are rejected. As Christ's followers, we will be rejected. We will not be seen as the cool people. And we will not fit in always. I know it's not entirely encouraging to hear this, but it gives us this perspective that, now and here is not where we are to be placing our our emphasis, our focus. It's not now and here that we live for. It's an eternal faith that we have. An eternal faith that, that helps us to be focused on on what God brings in the future. And if you are struggling with The fact that you don't fit in or you don't um, have many friends or or perhaps that you don't have a cool group of of people around you. It might be a little harsh of me to say, but I would say, so what? So what if people don't like us now because we have a Saviour who has given his life for us? We have a saviour who has given his life in such a way to bring us back to God that it's not important for us to fit in now. So the disciples went out and they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is the entire reason why Jesus came to earth, to preach repentance, to preach repentance, that the kingdom of God had come to earth. And now we see his disciples being trained up in that very ministry as preachers of that very thing, to repent. Preaching that people should repent. I was up in my office um, during the week and Jodie came in for a a quick visit. And she said to me, uh, this sermon was up on the computer screen, and she said, What does it mean to repent? What does repentance mean? And if I was to ask everyone in this room, I'd probably get 12 or 15 different answers. I would say that repentance is a complete turnaround. If I am heading in the way, and I I so wanted to walk away from the lectern while while I was doing this, but if I was to, to be walking this way, and God is at my back. I'm walking away from God. And yet repentance is is turning a complete 180 degrees away from what I want to do and turning to what God wants me to do. Without repentance, we're heading in a direction that's away from God, further and further away from God. But to repent means to be turned around by recognition of our sin and then being motivated for God, by love for God, to obey his commands. It's a change of heart and mind, not of, not of just physical direction but of, physical, of, of our complete life, our heart, mind, body and soul. And it includes turning away from sin and turning to God for forgiveness. Repentance is an essential part of the Christian faith. If I was to stand up here tonight and say that we don 't need to to worry about this verse in mark six chapter twelve uh, mark six verse twelve i 'd be doing you a disservice because repentance is crucial to our faith if we were Giving a way of, of trying to come into to be a Christian without repentance, then we 'd be kidding ourselves if we were thinking of ourselves as Christians without repentance, without acknowledging our sin and turning away from it we 're kidding ourselves, and there needs to be repentance in order to to be. Br- Brought back into the fold of the people of God. Verse 13 says that they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. There's three things in this passage that that the disciples displayed they were given the, the authority over demons, they expelled demons, which is one in the same. They preached that men, are, men should repent and they anointed sick with oil and healed them. Three things. Three things that are, that are, are completely um, in line with the coming of the kingdom of God to the earth. Associated, that's the word I was looking for, with the proclamation of the kingdom of God and it just goes to show that that the kingdom of god had come in jesus where do you stand with god at the moment this evening where do you stand with him if i was to ask you how much you trust in god what would you say If I was to say that you could have more training in, in being able to trust God, would you jump at the chance? Because just if I, if I wanted to do a marathon, I'd have to train my, not only my body and my lungs to be able to withstand that, I'd have to train my mind as well so that I could complete the distance. And it's the same with our Christian walk. We have to be continually training our mind, body and soul to be able to continually trust in God. And one of the great places to start is with reading the experiences of the disciples after Jesus was resurrected. You see, they got to a point where they thought, Jesus is dead. What is going on? I don't know what is happening and yet when they saw the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Jesus, they were able to trust God because they knew that all the things that Jesus had promised them had come about or perhaps you could study some of the promises that were were prophesied about in the Old Testament one of my favourite verses and Janine this is probably my life verse Is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Can you put that on the screen, Peter? It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And the New Living Testament says, For God can be trusted to keep his promises. God can be trusted. The Old Testament is full of promises that God can be trusted. And the New Testament is full of the fulfilment of those promises. God can be trusted. Or perhaps you're in a place right now where you need more training on how to tr- preach repentance to, to those around you. How to share the gospel with others and, and put your faith into action. Again, we can trust God for the words to say in, in circumstances where God stuff comes up. Or perhaps you need more trust in God when it comes to health or or sickness. Again, God can be trusted. Can you see a pattern happening here that, that we need to continually be training ourselves to be trusting in God? Because trusting in God is what we do as Christians, right? So we have to be continually training ourselves to be relying on God and to, to stand on the promises that he has made because he can be trusted. Let's pray. Father God, you are the God who can be trusted. You are the God who who makes promises and keeps them. And even when we can't see it in our own time, you keep those promises. And when we look at the, the experiences of the disciples, of the people in the Old Testament we can see that you make, their prom- make them promises and you fulfil them. Lord, help us to be continually training ourselves, to be relying on you for the, the trust, for every aspect of our, of our lives, of our Christian lives, our physical, physical lives and, and our financial lives as well to be trusting in you, to be reliant on you for every aspect of our lives because you can be trusted. And for that, Lord, we thank you. Pray pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, Janine.